Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. This is Yulia Zhoja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities, and I'm joined by Giselle Donnelly from the American Enterprise Institute. Alas, our colleague Zalabo Rohach has a different engagement today, so it'll be just Yulia and me. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. As always, if you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Jackson Janes, Jack, who is a resident senior fellow at the German. Marshall Fund, and he's also President Emeritus of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies. And joining us today from Germany, just after the Munich Security Conference, to give us all the impressions from on the ground. Jack, it's great to have you with us. Great to be here with you. So let's just start with the fresh impressions from on the ground. The Munich Security Conference, the most important European security conference taking place yearly and one of the most important ones internationally has just been wrapped up from year to year. It's very different. One way one can measure is by the size of the U.S. delegation, among other things, also by representation internationally. And it's usually taking place with a lot of events and quite a bit of drama. But I think we can say that this year it's been extraordinary. So again, it's great to have you with us to be able to tell us from the ground your impressions and what your overall take has been also in comparison to previous years as you're going almost every year now for a while. So Jack, over to you. Well, thank you very much for the honor. Yes, I have been going to this conference for a good 20 plus years. And I remember moments in time when the drama was high. I remember Joshka Fisher in 2003 saying to Mr. Rumsfeld, I'm not convinced. I remember Putin declaring what he was going to do in 2007, and now was doing, but we didn't necessarily take it seriously at that point. And, you know, now in 2014, I remember three Germans getting up there, Gauck, Ursula von der Leyen, and Steinmeier, in that order, telling that the Germans were now going to take up the, the banner of leadership in Europe. That was 10 years ago. This time, it was drama right from the start. The conference was due to set up its initial introduction from Christoph Heusken at one o'clock. At 11.20, the news hit that Navalny had died, or I should say, had been murdered. And that threw a pall over the entire next two or three days. And likely in the sense of not only listening to his wife get up there and give a speech just two hours or three hours after she had heard her husband had been killed, but it just was an emotional draining feeling of helplessness and quite frankly, vulnerability. You ask about the mood, I can tell you about the mood. It was very gloomy in the sense that we were looking at another bit of news that came in right after the day, and it was the loss of a certain small town in the Donbass. And this also represented things that were going in a different way last year. When we arrived in the Munich Security Conference last year, it was much more upbeat. There was a hope that summer push from the Ukrainians was going to break through Russian lines. There was a lot more activity on the scene, people coming together. It was expanding. I mean, there was a whole lot of other things to think about as positive notes. Here, there were a lot of negative notes. So I think that to some extent, that's the way we started. We went through the days thinking about what we were going to have to respond to. There were a lot of ideas, but at the same time, it left us all, I think, when we left a bit uncertain as to what was actually going to be operationalized. 
from now on in. So I leave you with that initial impression. We can pursue that if you'd like. Can we speculate a bit about that? Uh, let's take your impression at face value. And if we take it in the context of, let's just say, wavering American commitment, not only to Ukraine, but to NATO, if we take Donald Trump as any kind of a weather vane, is there a sense that now is time for Europe to really band together in a security way, either to pull the United States back to its position of leadership and to fulfill its responsibilities, B, to hedge against the prospect that the United States might, in fact, be turning back away from Europe, and then then see how we imagine the Europeans feel about facing off against a clearly revanchist and expansionist Russia. Again, it's like, you know, the dark ghosts of deep history have come out of the closet and once again destroyed the European peace or threatened to destroy the European peace. I know that's a long and winding question. So if you pick whatever piece of that has any appeal for you. Well, I think that basically there was a great deal of concern. Obviously, the other shadow besides Putin, who, by the way, you know, sort of invited himself with these messages from Moscow. Uh, the other message that was coming from a guy who wasn't there was Trump. And the discussion about whether or how or how much, you know, the old expression, do you take him literally or seriously, came up in this discussion as well. I think that basically the question becomes credibility of a European response to this moment in time without the United States. And that, I think, remains ambiguous. You know, the Baltic states, Prime Minister of, of Estonia was extremely eloquent on this question. And by the way, you know, it's interesting. She kept referring to the fact that we are in a moment in time that resembles 1938. The 30s is something that I've heard from others too, former Ambassador Michael McFall, some analysts in the opposition from Russia. Um, so she specifically said 38. Yeah. I mean, this is this is the reference that she made and ability to say, you know, we've been saying this to you, or I should say the person had said this particular reminder frequently on the stage was Radek Sikorsky, which will not surprise you, saying we told you. About no, but coming from such a young politician is pretty striking. You know, she's all of, or many of us, Elia still being a spring chicken, you know, grew up with the language of the late 30s and appeasement and all the rest of that stuff. And now it's not just gone out of fashion, but sort of taken as people who use this language are often mocked as being alarmists and out of touch and out of date. It strikes me as a significant development that such a young and vibrant politician, somebody clearly destined for a larger role and maybe a larger stage, is using that kind of language. Yeah, very absolutely. She was clearly a star at this meeting in that respect, as was, point out, the Lithuanian foreign minister who I'm sure you've had on your show, he was absolutely brilliant in terms of talking about what was at stake. And this is, I think, the question that was coming from the Baltics, coming from other Eastern European uh, directions. What are the stakes now? And I think there was a kind of a breakdown in terms of who believes that the next step for Putin is going to be an attack beyond Ukraine. I say that because one of the representatives of, of the United States was a senator by the name of J.D. Vance. Yeah, so mini Trump. He said flat out, A, Europe should get its act together. Everybody nodded. Yes, indeed, we should. And we are. But then he said, I do not believe 
that Putin is going to attack any country under the NATO flag. And there again, I think you have the difference between the immediacy, the urgency, and probability of more aggression coming from Putin into Europe, as opposed to some of the people who were representing that particular school of thought from Trump saying, we don't believe that. But I think at the same time, the the issue is really more of credibility of deterrence without the U.S. As you may have read about the fact that Schultz gave a speech, which ended with an upbeat kind of, we are all on the same page. We are all looking for an opportunity to make sure that Ukraine doesn't lose, but that Russia doesn't win. I mention that sentence because it's often interpreted as ambiguous. What does it mean in either case? That you Ukraine wins? And what does it mean that Russia loses? And so in the end, I think behind the discussions was really the sense that most people are in behind closed doors talking about what type of negotiations are going to be plausible under what conditions and who will agree with that when it comes from both Kiev as well as Moscow. I think that most people at the conference were saying Russia and Putin is not interested in negotiations, period, until the election of the United States is over. And so I think that the question becomes in the meantime, what kind of credible steps is Europe, Germany in the lead, perhaps because of its leading position as the, the bigger supplier, are they going to have? One other point I should make is that one thing that people focused on was not only who was there, but who was not there. Macron was not there. Tusk was not there. The Weimar Triangle could not be then as equally addressed by three different countries that could have represented that at a very important point. That didn't happen. And so just as Trump wasn't there and Putin wasn't there, there was a lot of questions about that particular angle of the credibility of a European posture in the coming years. You must have noticed that too. And I'd love to pull uh, in a bit also on the thread of Putin, the future of Russia, and of course, in the context of Navalny's death. But before we get into that, you're sort of alluding to that, I think teasing it, it out because you know it's coming from this podcast, how you were assessing at this specific conference last weekend, the divide in perceptions vis-a-vis -vis how urgent um, the Russian threat is between, say, the eastern flank plus the Nordics, because we've seen some amazing news from countries like Denmark, too, saying they're going to give all of their ammunition to Ukraine. And on the other hand, the Germans, specifically, of course, the French, too, with a lot of German accusations um, from analysts, from experts over the last few months that Scholz specifically, Chancellor Scholz is moving too slowly, that he's including from this conference that he's not favoring Ursula von der Leyen as future NATO Secretary General because she's too hawkish and he wants to secure a relationship with Russia for after the war when others are saying there is no after the war in sight anytime soon. So to rephrase it then between Kaya Kalas and Foreign Minister of Lithuania Landsberg and others on the one hand, Sikorsky, of course, too. And on the other hand, parts of the German delegation headed by Chancellor Scholz. Have you seen the division that we keep talking about? Or do you have the feeling that compared to last year, Germany is actually getting closer to understanding that the war can come closer to them, too? And the last element I'll put into this is we've had a few months ago on this podcast, um, Heiko B who you know, my former colleague and supervisor from Berlin. And I remember I asked him on this podcast, so what do Germans' public opinion think about the war? Is it far or is it close? Um, how urgent is it? And he said, for the majority, this was in the 
fall. For the majority of Germans, I would argue the war is really far away. It's still in eastern Ukraine. It doesn't, people don't conceive of it coming closer when clearly that's the fear in the Baltic countries. So how do you see this now? Has there been any evolution or are we still in the same spot with Germany? I think we're still in that same spot. There is still a percentage-wise people who support Ukraine. But I think that the question when it comes up to how long and with what remains ambiguous. You know, if you, as I did in Berlin prior to going to Munich, sat around with people in Berlin having dinner in expensive restaurants, and he said, just look around. Somebody's got to do it, Jack. Well, it was my hard duty, but it was really interesting to have so many people point that out to me and say, the people don't feel like they're at war here. Now, there's over a million Ukrainian refugees in Germany, but I think that the reality of the threat, and to some extent, you know, if Ukraine was to absolutely begin to collapse, there could be not only one million refugees in Germany, there could be far more of those. And I don't think that that's something that's uh, quite frankly recognized. Now, that's the public I'm talking about. At the same time, there is this very, very contentious uh, decision going on right this second in the Bundestag tomorrow morning with an application by the FDP, the Greens, and believe it or not, the CDU talking about a message to Schultz saying that he should allow the Taurus to be supplied to Ukraine, who has been, you know, holding back on that ever since the issue came up. The long range weapons. Yeah. yeah and, you know, 500 miles, right? Right? So I think that the issue is more going to be in the spotlight tomorrow because people who like, you know, Rodrigo Kiesewetter, who maybe you've had on the show or certainly Norbert Rutgen are amazingly energetic in saying all the time, we have to understand that this is not just a danger for the Baltic states because they're on the border. It's not just a danger for Poland because it's on the border. It's not just because Ukraine has been invaded. It's all of us in NATO. And I think that that's something that hasn't really been able to be solidified within the community in Europe. And maybe that's the biggest challenge that lies ahead. I want to ask just one quick follow-up question on Germany, and then I'll let Giselle loose <laughs> on this. But German nukes, right? Discussion that has been in the background, half taboo for a long time. And now people are saying, well, two years ago, Germany just wanted to send helmets. I don't think they're in, in any way, shape or form serious about having a nuclear weapon themselves. I think it's more with with regard to the offer, by the way, that Macron had reached out with a, a while back, enjoying a nuclear posture with France, Germany, as in a way, you know, kind of a European nuclear sharing arrangement. But that has yet to happen. But I, I don't think that there's going to be a move, even though that goes way back to the 1960s when Germans were at that point thinking about having a nuclear weapon, which was quickly dismissed by Adenauer. But I think that that's not going to happen in, in the context of Germany. I think it's more a question mark of how they can perhaps perhaps assemble around the one nuclear member, France, and see whether or not they can find an agreement as to how they would handle that. But it's very, also very critical issue on the part of some people who thinks that, you know, talk of that sort is open the door to proliferation. And so I think that's the missing link. That's the reason why I thought it was fortunate it was not at the uh, Munich Security Conference. Well, you know, actually, too little attention has been paid to this issue, particularly in light of Trump's renewed promise to get out of NATO. It's not like there's a huge American nuclear force that's stationed in Europe, but if it were to be withdrawn and the umbrella that would presumably still be in place in the United States were not seen as credible as an extended deterrent for Europe, 
you know, what are people going to do? You know, if I were a pole, for example, I'd be, you know, warhead shopping now. And this would be just a gift to France. Uh, you know, it would catapult them from already kind of a fading second-ranked European power right back to the center of the action. It would allow France to try to reshape the European project more to its liking. It seems like a small issue, but it could have catastrophic consequences, at least or threatens to have such consequences. And there just has not been any talk about that. No, it's a taboo subject, as Julia mentioned, and, and particularly in Germany. But this is, again, an interesting thing is to track this maybe going forward now that Tusk is in Warsaw and hopefully will be able to become a little bit more active on the European scene than his predecessor. I think that would be the question as to what you do with that particular equation of Weimar Triangle and trying to see whether or not there's going to be acceptance at that level. You know, German jets are, are able to carry weapons, but the major question comes down to whose finger is going to be on the button in that context, and that still hasn't been resolved, and I don't know how it's going to be resolved, quite frankly. So it's it's one of those unfinished issues that was left aside from the Munich Security Conference. I had one more MSC question, if I could sneak it in. You know, I was struck. The conference always produces a paper ahead of time. That's a good point. <laughs> because there are dreadful things to read under the best of circumstances. And actually, I have not read the original, but I've, I've read the news coverage of this year's paper. And it was just it seemed entirely out of touch with strategic reality. There was a lot of, you know, Global South talk and so on and so forth. It seemed out of date by at least several years and not very responsive to things that are actually going on in Europe. I don't know what to make of that, Jack. I don't either. I mean, I think that I've got it right in front of me. It's called Lose Lose. I don't know if you know the title of it. Oh, my God. That's so European. You know, it's extremely, you know, you sort of double take what? And the notion, of course, was that we were talking last year about win-win. And now we're talking about lose-lose. And there was really no slogan like there has been. Remember the one that was, I think, 2019 or 20, Westlessness? That was even more interesting than this one was, I think. But the idea was that we're at odds with how we respond to multiple, as we call it in the trade now, poly crises. And that was a list of the poly crises, but nothing really in terms of what it was that was going to have to happen as much as, as saying, this is where we are. Man, it's bad out there. <laughs> Better stay inside by the fire. <laughs> Gloom and doom. I actually like Jack's title. I think that the polycrisis would have been a better one. Maybe hint, hint, depending on the situation, this is something that they might want to consider depending on the US election outcome next year. I'm going to ask the Russia question and hope that Giselle wants to ask a little bit more about the US delegation and, and all of that. I do have a JD fans, you know, kind of fetish. So yeah. I'm curious, Jack, of your take and I, I guess how you've read the room or the many rooms at the Munich Security Conference in the context. 900 participants, 900 people. How you read the part of the room that you already know for so many years. On Russia specifically, because of course this was the ultimate bomb and the ultimate shock at the beginning. I also noted your comment a bit earlier about how Putin almost invited himself. He, he does follow what is happening there and it is important 
to him. So it's uh, grotesque the way that he seems to have invited himself. And beyond Navalny that I have to mention here is a very controversial figure in Central and Eastern Europe because of previous statements and comments he's made vis-a-vis the post-Soviet space. But either way, he is, was the leader of the opposition, a popular leader of the opposition in Russia. So his death, his murder, the way you mentioned it earlier, is telling, of course, of what is happening in Russia as we speak. So I guess the question is, vis-a-vis reading the room, to what extent this has been ad hoc in the days that followed the big news on, on Friday, has been interpreted by people as telling of Russia's future. We all in the West hope in some form, we can't drop the hope altogether, that there is some kind of a future for some kind of a transition away from Putin. And Navalny was for many a good alternative. What are people or how are you looking at this? And what have you heard at this conference about what the future of Russia is in people's understanding in the West? A country that is on a wartime footing, 6% in terms of its budget for ramping up its military for the foreseeable future. Conversation with this shock jock by the name of Tucker Carlson, who allows him an enormous platform to say what his version of history and the future of Europe should be, with an eye on Poland, by the way. The idea that he is going to be able to control the country for the foreseeable future was painfully painted by three Russian women, two of which I know and one of which I didn't, who gathered with Fiona Hill in a remarkably emotional moment to talk about the impact of Navalny's death. One of them was Irina Sherbakova, you probably know, who represents Memorial now in Germany after being kicked out of Russia. And the daughter of Nemtsova, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, the gentleman who was killed in 2015 on the bridge in Moscow. And they were very, again, gloomy about the future of Russia without any particular note or ability to say when Putin would disappear from the scene. So, you know, a continuation of an aggressive leader in Moscow, and effectively what that boils down to, and I asked this a couple of questions of people, are we in a Cold War redux or a Cold War 2.0? And that gets back to the question of the long-term thinking in Europe about the confrontation, as opposed to people who were saying, well, you know, once we get a negotiation going, we can settle this business. And, you know, basically, Zelensky will have to give up the, the four blasts and, and, and obviously Crimea, and then we'll get back to business with Russia. And so I think there's there's always that in there somewhere. But the point I guess you're asking me, which I really have no answer for, to, except for listening to those three Russian women telling that they feel their country is going in a very, very dangerous direction, regardless of who follows Putin, by the way. I uh, have a line from Timothy Snyder that has stuck in my head now for quite some time is empires don't reform. They get defeated in war and collapse and then reconstruct if they change at all. It's People are too willing to sort of put the cart before the horse and hope that Russians, who are brutally repressed by this regime, will solve our Russia slash Putin problem and that we won't have to do very much. It just seems to be upside down. You look at the way people were handled in Moscow in the last days since the murder, who were trying to lay flowers in front of a monument in Moscow. It was heartbreaking. And, you know, my sense is that this is the long term. We're talking, you know, often it's not. We will talk about China, by the way. The foreign minister of China was there and he said, 
that China is only there to preserve peace in the world. But that's another subject. But the idea of listening to these three women talk about the fact that this is an enemy that is going to be there for a long time to come. And that gets back to the question as to whether Europeans are really able to absorb that. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Pistorius had mentioned in a couple of instances uh, in public where he said, my three daughters grew up in the last 30 years, and they've had no exposure to any kind of conflict like this. And to make that change is extremely difficult. And that's just Germany. But I think that to some extent, the idea is that this is a long-term confrontation with an aggressive imperialistic power that's going to require not just a 2%, but a 3% budget. This is, this is the kind of talk that is in the German think tank circles. But how do you get there? In that particular case, with a coalition that's, quite frankly, at odds with each other on even the, the domestic issues, how do you get a Europe organized at that level to have the same kind of deterrent capacity that is not there? This is the criticism that came from J.D. Vance, if you want to go back to that issue. Of course I want to go back to J.D. Vance. It's, you know, all we are allowed on the Eastern Front is sort of gulag humor. And luckily, people like Trump, and you mentioned Tucker, but now J.D. Vance offer that in plentiful supply. But there's also a grimly serious aspect to what is just performative politics. You ask yourself, why did he even bother to join the delegation except for to spurn the meeting with Zelensky? He apparently did not go to any of the smaller gatherings, which is really the central part of the, the conference. I mean, you can watch the main hall proceedings from your hotel room, and maybe I did that once or twice myself, but I'm not talking. But to think that you could use or to try to use this conference is as sort of stayed and out of touch as it sometimes seems. It's still a central, it's a fixture of transatlantic relations. And to just kind of use it as a stage in this way for really petty American political purposes is shameful, but also frightening to me that he's not going to pay any penalty for it. You know, I mean, he'll certainly get some, there are two 200 X followers or whatever his measure of success is. But it's a, it's a measure of where we stand that's very depressing. It is depressing. I mean, I think what you have to understand is his message that he said he was not making with any kind of chip on his shoulder, he said, is to say, we are in an era of scarcity. And this means that we cannot do all of those things that we are supposed to do or were told to do in the past. And therefore, it's up to you to take up the slack. It's up to you to take up the challenge of dealing with Ukraine, because that is where your responsibility lies. Our responsibility lies in the Indo-Asian theater. It was pretty point blank. And I think that basically that is the message that's going to be coming from his sources. Now, he said quite pointly, I am not representative of the other Republicans that may be here at this conference. Now, one of the things that I mentioned before was who isn't there? You know who wasn't there as well? Lindsey Graham. And that was, I think, a significant message as well. Also, like once John McCain's sidekick and now at least politically adjacent to Trump and J.D. Van. And even more, if he was sometimes derided as, you know, mini McCain, now he could be deride him as mini Vance or mini Trump. Well, didn't he oppose the supplemental recently? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the people that were there that did not oppose the supplemental included, for example, Senator Sullivan from Alaska, who spoke at a 
a very large meeting of the conservative group, the CSU. And he said, you know, I have a feel that this will go through. I think we'll just get there. And then came the two mantras that you heard a lot. And you understand democracy is messy. But you know what Churchill said about the United States. We'll get it right when we do everything else before. I'm waiting for the list of all the bad things that we do to be over. It's about time to flip over to the let's do it right posture. Now, on the Alaska thing, I also want to say, you know, he should be aware there's a territorial threat from Russia. <laughs> If Alaska is not aware of that, then who is? <laughs> yeah, you can see it from his house. <laughs> yeah, where's, where's Sarah Palin when you need him? All right. Well, maybe we'll leave it at that on a somewhat positive note with what Giselle very accurately calls the gulag humor. And Jack, you fit right in with uh, the description of the U.S. delegation. I think we have to leave it at this, but it was great hosting you and getting the insights from the Munich Security Conference just as it has unfolded and quite a few issues to look out for. Of course, our audience knows about and everybody is focused around what is happening to the supplemental in the United States, but also looking closer at Germany and that combination of factors, hoping that Germany will start to move a little bit faster in the promise that you mentioned earlier, and I was thinking about it too, from 2013 of more responsibility and leadership for European security. It was actually 2014. If you go back and look at those three speeches, it was designed to motivate. And I'm about to send a note to President Gauck saying I wish that he had been there again. Jack James, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a wonderful honor. Thanks so much. See you back in Washington. From me, Yulia Zoja, and my friend, Jill Donnelly. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. To stay up to date with the Eastern Front, please give us a follow on Twitter or X at Eastern Front Pod in one word and sign up for the newsletter included in the show notes. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye. Thank you.